Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 53. This week, the podcast turns one year old, and we're so pleased and thankful for the hundreds of thousands of downloads we've received from you, our listeners. For this first anniversary, we're going to share part two of our favorite stories and segments from 2017 with you. Like last week, they're presented in chronological order. This week, we're going from midsummer through the year's end. And we're not going to spend a lot of time setting up each piece, but we will tell you the date, the episode, and the article title each time, just to keep it all in context. So welcome to part two of our 2017 Favorite Stories in Review. June 28th, episode 26, from 100 years ago this week, the Red Cross we know today. The American Red Cross, or ARC, was founded by Clara Barton in May of 1881, earning a historic role for serving people in need. In large part, the American Red Cross we know today was forged by the war that changed the world. The transformation began as we declared war in April of 2017. And at that crucial time, Red Cross headquarters was reeling under the sudden projected demands on it. So in May of 2017, President Woodrow Wilson appointed Henry P. Davidson, a successful New York banker, to head a war council. The war council was to direct the Red Cross. Yeah, it looks pretty much like a U.S. war effort takeover. By the end of June, 100 years ago this week, having just knocked it out of the park with the Liberty Bond Drive, the U.S. government turned its sights on successfully wrapping up a $100 million fund drive from private donations on behalf of the Red Cross. So think about it. That's over $2 billion in 2017 being raised for a private organization with the direct support of the U.S. federal government. Here's what it looked like 100 years ago this week in the pages of the official bulletin the Government War Gazette, headed by George Creel, America's propaganda chief for President Woodrow Wilson. Dateline, June 25, 1917. Headline, Believe the $100 million Red Cross Fund will be raised. The Red Cross issues the following. A thousand American cities are striving today to boost the big Red Cross War Fund to an even $100 million. With returns well over the three-quarter mark this afternoon, the War Council officers are confident that by the close of the day, the Red Cross War Fund will be in hand. The next day, the drumbeat continues. Tuesday, June 26, 1917. Headline. $100 million Red Cross War Fund is oversubscribed. The story reads, The Red Cross War Fund of $100 million has been raised. The even sum was passed sometime during the night. Today's returns continue to boost the sum by the millions. Before noon, the grand total was $104 million, with a prospect that $105 million would be marked up on the big headquarters blackboard before night. Then, one day later on Wednesday. Dateline, Wednesday, June 27, 1917. Headline. 
millions still being raised to the Red Cross War Fund. How much over $100 million the War Fund of the American Red Cross will go is purely a matter of conjecture. Taking into consideration all overlapping of subscriptions that may occur, the fund should be at least 15 or $20 million over the goal by July 1st. The campaign officially terminated on Monday night, but hundreds of cities throughout the nation have volunteered to go right on with collecting funds for the Red Cross. And then, on Thursday, the U.S. State Department oversteps its bounds and the Red Cross pushes back very politely. Dateline, Thursday, June 28, 1917. Headline, Red Cross Seeks Change in Base Hospital Ruling. On June 20th, the American Red Cross Director General of the Department of Military Relief forwarded to the directors of all Red Cross base hospitals a copy of a letter received from the State Department to the effect that hospital units intended for service abroad should not include persons of German, Austro-Hungarian, Bulgarian, or Turkish nationality or birth, or American citizens whose fathers were born in Germany, Austro-Hungaria, or allied countries. The Red Cross goes on to explain that this type of policy may work in a country with very few people of foreign birth, but in America, an immigrant nation, they say, quote, such unfair discrimination against some of our most patriotic and respected citizens is inappropriate. Finally, on Friday, the most interesting and intriguing Red Cross article of all. Dateline, Friday, June 29, 1917. Headline, Military Titles, Rank, and Uniform Will Be Used by Red Cross Agents in War Theater. The headline continues with, War Department Will Commission Representatives of the Organization to Facilitate Their Work in Service of Humanity. Appropriate insignias will be provided. What a great topper for a week of stories about the Red Cross. Let's summarize. First, the U.S. government creates a war council appoints their man, Henry P. Davidson, and effectively puts him in charge of the Red Cross through this war council. Then, the U.S. government puts its imprint, endorsement, and propaganda machine on a major multi-billion dollar, in today's terms, fundraising campaign to fund a private humanitarian organization generally managed by it. The next day, the official fund drive has ended, but hundreds of local communities and cities just keep on raising money, way more than the original goal. Then, on the following day, the Red Cross pushes back on a U.S. State Department ruling that basically bans all Red Cross volunteers of German, Austro-Hungarian, Turkish, or Bulgarian descent. Hey, these are loyal immigrants and second-generation Americans. Uh, what are you thinking? They reply in very polite terms. All this is capped off by the end of the week with an article that explains that military titles, ranks, and U.S. uniforms will be used by the Red Cross in the war theater. The role and relationship of the Red Cross and the U.S. government and the interplay between the two during this dynamic time in history is a story that I find personally amazing and yet another great example of the echoes we still see today from the war that changed the world. July 5, Episode 27, from Events. Ready to serve a one-woman show about World War I nurses with Eloise Shuttler. Eloise, welcome. 
Thank you, Teo. I'm delighted to be here with everyone. So thank you for inviting me. You're perfectly welcome. Eloise, I understand that you put two years of work into researching and writing the show. Tell us about that. Well, I did. Uh, actually, I've come to live with these women. Uh, it started longer ago than them. I first did a story on the Hello Girls, the switchboard operators. And several years ago, I knew that I needed a second story in order to bring the service that women had given in World War One. I was a nursing student at Hopkins in 1954, and I noticed on the wall in the reception area a plaque that noted the World War I hospital in France, and I was always curious, and I decided that I would go and see if there was a story there. There was, there is, and it's the story I tell of 64 nurses trained at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, and uh, I'm very proud to have it. Eloise, what do you do to engage modern-day audiences who may not be familiar with World War I at all with stories from people 100 years ago? Well, this is what I do. I am a professional storyteller. And one of the things that we try to do is to involve the people that are listening to us tell these stories. This is a personal story for me. Uh, what I do is I start this story in 1970. And the nurses have been back for 50 years. I am currently an 80-year-old storyteller. So I had to tell this story as an 80-year-old woman. So I'm telling the story is coming from the mouth of an 80-year-old veteran nurse. And she draws you in immediately to explain this. There's a war going on in our country for our boys in 1970, and she no longer wants to watch television on the news because it makes her remember the boys that she took care of when she was a World War I nurse in a hospital in France. And that's the bridge that I make. And then I just sit there and tell you her story. She tells you her story. I did not personally want to be telling a story about them. I want to have them tell their stories. I was looking for the personal voice of the nurse that went over so that we could hear from them what it was like to be there in the winter of 1917 and 18 where the weather turned against them up in the mountains and where the water was freezing and they were freezing and several of their nurses died from that weather because they couldn't work in the extremity of that cold. The interesting thing to me is they were warned by French nurses about a month ahead of October when the weather was going to turn, and they told them about the weather. What happens to a man in a trench? That he gets trench foot from the water and from the cold and the mud, and that when they come in to the hospital and they're taken and cleaned, they've got layers and layers of lice on them because they've been the warmth that's been feeding the lice. So they said, you can do this, but you have to prepare for it. And so that's some of what I try to do. Eloise, you are amazing. So thank you. Thank you for coming on and telling us about that. Eloise, when does the show run? Where, where, where can people see this? The, the show is at Gallaudet University. 
Uh, it opens tomorrow night to honor these women and their experience is very similar to the experience that nurses were having all over France who were coming in, all over any battle area. And so by coming and hearing their story, we're really looking back and honoring these women who went forth. The other thing I want to make a point about, they were 25 to 44 years old. They were not young women as are often portrayed in the movies. The Red Cross had decided that they would only have seasoned nurses who could face any situation and handle it. That was Eloise Shuttler, spoken word artist and storyteller, to tell us about her new performances of Ready to Serve, a one-woman show about World War I nurses. July 12, Episode 28, from Commission News. Farewell to former Commissioner James Nutter with Dan Dayton. Teo, I'm saddened to have to report today the passing of James Nutter Sr. Mr. Nutter was one of the original 12 commissioners on the World War I Centennial Commission. Commission Chair Rob D'Alessandro said, It's with great sadness that I report the death of Jim Nutter. Jim was an original member of the commission and our first donor, graciously hosting us in Kansas City after our first meeting and really providing the seed money to hire our first staff members and get us started. Jim was always there for the World War I Centennial Commission. He was in Kansas City, a pioneer in mortgage lending. He founded his first mortgage lending company in 1951. And the Army veteran and Midwest native wanted to help his friends purchase their own homes with the comfort of personal touch, customer service. And indeed he did. He was always generous, gracious, and helpful to me and everyone on the commission. And he will be sorely missed. July 19, episode 29, 100 years ago this week, a tale of combat between a merchant ship and a U-boat. Dateline, July 20, 1917. Headline, Naval Gunners on Armed American Merchant Ship Battle with German Submarine. After merchant crew takes to lifeboats, men cheered and congratulated by the U-boat sailors for their gallant fight. This is a first-person account by the chief petty officer in charge of the armed guard aboard the U.S. steamship Moraney. We were attacked by a submarine at 4.05 a.m. on June 12, 1917. She was off our port quarter about 9,000 yards away. She fired four or five shots before we located her. We swung around until our stern faced the submarine and returned fire at a range of about 7,000 yards. After a half-hour fight, we were hit in the gasoline tank aft, and a fire started. It was reported to me that the ammunition aft was running low. Immediately, I lined up the forward guns crew with the merchant's crew to pass ammunition from forward to aft. About an hour later, fire broke out all over the ship, and it became impossible for the men to pass any more ammunition. I went for and reached the bridge, being burned on the way there. About this time, our steering gear was shot away, and we started to go around in circles. Coming down off the bridge, I saw the captain and the boatswain ready to lower the lifeboat. The captain said to come and get in the lifeboat as it was starting to burn. I asked him to wait. He said he would hold on to the boat as long as possible for me. I then noticed two of the gun's crew in the lifeboat. I ordered them out to come with me. 
We went forward and manned the forward gun, which we fired four times before the firing pin went out of commission. As we could fire no more, and as the captain called that the lifeboat was burning, we got into the boat. Seeing us in the water, the submarine called the boat alongside. They congratulated us, shook hands with the captain, and told us that it was the best fight they had ever seen any merchantman put up. The Germans treated two of the men who had been wounded and returned us to our boats. The commander of the submarine said he would have towed us towards the beach but for the fact that we had called for assistance. Both of these stories were in the Friday, July 20th issue of The Official Bulletin, Volume 1, Issue 60. Now, The Official Bulletin is the U.S. government war gazette published by order of the president by George Creel, his propaganda chief. We republish each issue of the Bulletin on the centennial anniversary of its original publication. This is an amazing resource for historians and history buffs, educators and students, social and media anthropologists, and folks like me who just happen to be deeply interested in the actual words published by the U.S. government 100 years ago this week in The War That Changed the World. July 26, episode 30, from The Buzz, the Kodak Vest Pocket Camera, with Catherine Akey. Hi, Teo. We share a lot of images on our social media pages, notably on our Instagram, at WW1CC. And I'm sure that my being a photographer has something to do with that. But it's important to note that many, if not most, of the photographs that we see from World War I are inherently propagandistic. They probably were taken by official war photographers or by journalists sanctioned by their home governments. Because of this, very few images of real action exist, and usually they're from a great distance, and all you can see are puffs of smoke and destroyed landscapes. And images were often composed of multiple negatives, were staged, or otherwise edited to appear more dramatic. But the official photographers weren't the only men on the field with cameras, thanks to an advancement made by one of the most iconic photography companies in history. This week, we shared an article on Facebook about a little-known World War I-era camera, something kept as secreted away as possible by the soldiers that owned one, the Kodak Vest Pocket Camera, known as the VPK. Kodak launched its new, smaller, lighter, portable cameras using celluloid film in 1912, just two years before the outbreak of the First World War, and a craze was born. Ordinary people no longer had to rely on professional studios or official photographers. They could photograph for themselves. Fearing potential intelligence and propaganda issues, the British War Office declared in late 1914 that the taking of photographs is not permitted. Any officers or soldier found in possession of a camera will be placed in arrest and the case reported to general headquarters. But photographing continued nonetheless, and thanks to the VPK, the everyman and every woman of the war could help in producing a parallel archive of images to the official narratives of the war photographers, a first instance of the democratization of conflict photography. Go to our Facebook page or to the podcast notes to read more about this incredible photographic history in the article, The Vest Pocket Kodak, The Soldier's Kodak. August 30. Episode 35, from Speaking World War One. And now for our Speaking World War One feature, where we explore today's words and phrases that were rooted in the war. This week's phrase is, Field Day. Today, one might say that 
Hollywood press had a field day when rumors broke out that Angelina and Brad broke up. The way it's used now, the phrase, to have a field day, means an opportunity for action, success, or excitement. But the phrase originates from the military. It was used, in a literal sense, for a day spent in the field doing maneuvers, exercises, and drills. This was particularly true during World War I, when a lot of men got a lot of training exercises. A Marine Corps barracks might have sounded like this. All right, gentlemen, grab your packs, your rifles, and your sorry butts. Today we are having a field day, starting with a four-mile run. Move out, you maggots. Field day. A big event, now and then. The earliest references go back all the way to 1747. See the podcast notes for more. September 27, Episode 39. From Speaking World War I. This week, the word's not really a word, but an abbreviation that you would not have guessed was birthed during World War I. The phrase is OMG. One hundred years ago this month, on September 9, 1917, a retired admiral of the British Navy, Lord Fisher, fired off a letter to Winston Churchill. The two men often wrote one another about various naval aspects of the ongoing war, and in this letter, on this day, he wrote, My dear sir, I hear that there's a new order of knighthood in the lapis. OMG, oh my God, shower it on the admiralty. Now, we're not really sure what he was prattling about, but on this day he did coin the term. While you may have always believed that OMG was a texting term from a California 18-year-old mall rat, the first ever documented use of the term is between two English gentlemen during World War I. OMG, that's so cray-cray. And we have a link for you to the article where we found the story in the podcast notes. October 4, Episode 40 From the Great War Project blog Ring of Spies in Palestine with Mike Schuster A Ring of Spies in Palestine It's all about a Jewish spy ring assisting the British against the Turks that gets busted by the Turkish secret police. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Teo. Here are the headlines from the Great War Project this week. Ring of Spies in Palestine a young woman keeps her secrets under pain of death, seeking a national home for the Jews, and this is special to the Great War Project. A century ago, in October, the situation for the Allies looks desperate on almost all fronts. The fight for the Belgian village of Passchendaele is a stalemate, with thousands of casualties on both sides. Killed and wounded are growing. Many soldiers are drowning in the mud and muck. Few American soldiers are ready yet, their training is too slow, and their commander, General John J. Pershing, explodes at the laconic pace of their deployment. And at sea, writes historian Martin Gilbert, the Allies are not doing much better. Russia has ships deployed in the Baltic Sea, but the Russian fleet there refuses to obey orders of the provisional government in Petrograd. While the Germans make plans for more attacks near the Russian shores, the crew of one Russian mine layer refuses to lay its mines. On the Italian fronts, the number of Italian deserters had risen to 70,000. And in Palestine, Gilbert reports, the Turkish secret police have broken a valuable Jewish spy ring working for the British and arrested one of its leaders, Sarah Aronson. For four days they tortured her, Gilbert writes, but she revealed nothing. Then on October 5th, she killed herself. 
Sarah and her brother Aaron were instrumental in creating a Jewish spy ring in Palestine, providing invaluable intelligence for the British there. As a result, the British began to look carefully at replacing Turkish rule by a Zionist entity under British rule. That summer, Gilbert writes, Lord Rothschild, leader of the Jewish community in Britain, gave the British government a draft formula for a Jewish national home in Palestine that would serve to encourage Jews in all the Allied armies to seek the defeat of the Turks as an important aim. Writes Gilbert, at first the British government moved slowly in its response, but on October 2nd, British intelligence learned of a meeting in Berlin at which plans were made by the Germans and Turks to offer the Jews of Europe a German-sponsored Jewish national home in Palestine. This stimulated the British search for a formula that would make the Allied offer to the Jews more attractive. As for the story of Sarah Aronson, reports of a Jewish spy ring in Palestine were circulating in Constantinople for some time, writes historian Scott Anderson. The Turks favored the use of torture on the Jews they seized. The Germans counseled a more delicate approach, all the time aware that they could use the support of the Jews in the war effort. But in the case of Sarah Aronson, the Turkish approach prevailed. She was seized at her family's home near Jerusalem, tied to a post, and beaten and whipped mercilessly but she revealed nothing. The Turks ordered Sarah and the other Jews in the spy ring to be taken to Nazareth. She asked permission to clean her bloodied face before a Turkish convoy would set out. Reports Anderson, at her family home, she was allowed to step into a bathroom unattended. Then she drew a revolver she had secreted in a cubbyhole in anticipation of just such a situation and shot herself in the mouth. She was 27 years old. And that's some of the news from the Great War Project this week, 100 years ago. Wow. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. October 18, Episode 42, from 100 Cities, 100 Memorials. The Genesis and the Future of the Program with Ken Clark. Welcome to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about our $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. Last month, we announced the first 50 World War I Centennial Memorials. Now we're full tilt into Round 2, which includes all the projects that have not received a grant from Round 1 and all the new projects that are joining the program. Kenneth Clark, the CEO and president of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, is joining us. This program is actually Ken's brainchild, and no one can articulate the value and the meaning of 100 Cities, 100 Memorials like he can. Ken and I recently had a chance to sit down in Washington, D.C. and talk about the program. Ken, 100 Cities, 100 Memorials was a concept you initiated. Can you talk to us about how this concept came to mind and how it germinated and grew into what it is today? I guess it was about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, when I came up with this idea to find a way for the American centennial of World War I to designate 100 memorials across the country as centennial memorials. I was reading the newspaper about the announcement of the plans for a World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. And it got me thinking about the fact that, well, like the Civil War and Spanish-American War, World War I was something that was commemorated on a very local level, historically. The American doughboy who came home and founded the American Legion and joined the Veterans for Foreign Wars, across this country, they erected monuments by the thousands to commemorate their service, 
to commemorate those who didn't come home with them and to honor not only themselves in a way, but also their family and their town's contribution to the war effort. This was something that everybody was very proud of. The American soldier during World War I went and fought for an ideal of freedom and liberty. And they came home victorious, having beat our enemy, our collective enemy. And so the importance of those monuments across the country and the town square, and everybody's seen them. Everybody's seen a doughboy or everybody's seen some kind of World War I monument. So the whole concept was to follow in the footsteps of the doughboys. They're the ones that came up with this idea to erect these monuments all over the country. And why we as a United States World War I Centennial Commission and we as the Pritzker Military Museum and Library couldn't find some way to encourage the renovation and restoration and sometimes even creation of World War I monuments through a program that was officially designed to make sure that it wasn't just the monument in Washington, D.C. It was also connected to communities across this country as well, that those monuments were brought to the forefront and we could have a conversation on a national level that included everywhere. That was where the idea came from. So I took this idea to my boss, Colonel Pritzker, and um, and she got it in like, you know, a matter of four seconds. Uh, it just was a total no-brainer for us. And that's when my work started talking to commissioners, talking to Dan Dayton, and trying to do everything I could to try to figure out how we're going to get this done. Uh, another one of the calls I did is I, I put a call out and coordinated with the American Legion and very early on got them involved with the project. Uh, they, they got it, but they actually did a national recognition of this whole program at one of their meetings. And so from there, it kind of started becoming more regular and becoming more normal. And then it started branching out and other people like yourself started getting involved with it. And it became not my idea, not the Doughboy's idea, but it became an idea for us here in the 21st century to really draw attention on a local level, getting towns and cities and counties and, and, and all sorts of people across the country to kind of rally around their monument, spend the time to take a careful inventory of it, and, and then look at what it needs so that it can stand the test of time for the next hundred years and then actually spend the time to submit an application. It's just a wonderful thing. It's just a wonderful thing. Um, my only other thought is if hundred cities, hundred memorials sparks a conversation in those hundred towns and that conversation spills out into the neighboring towns and then that conversation spills out into the neighboring towns and there's a little bit more awareness for the guys who went and fought if we can have that conversation and if we can start talking about the fact that the Misargon Offensive is the single biggest battle that Americans have ever participated in in its history, not anything during the American Revolution, nothing during the Civil War. It was World War I. If we can get that onto the lips of everyday Americans, school teachers, kids, and, and, and take responsibility for our history and what Americans did, fighting for an ideal, again, fighting for an ideal, liberty freedom, then I think we've done our work. That was Ken Clark, the president and CEO of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the spark that lit the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program into being. November 1, Episode 44, from 100 Years Ago This Week. Living in New York City. Did a slacker live in your apartment building 100 years ago? Dateline, October 29, 1917. 
The headline of the New York Times reads, Names of New Yorkers who have failed to respond to the draft call. 1,490 of draft age ignored summons. Men classed as deserters. Rewards of $50 for each. <laughs> okay, so this article put out by Roger B. Wood, the director of the draft in New York City, lists the names and the addresses of nearly 1,500 young men, known at the time as slackers. That's our speaking World War I word from our early August episode 32. They're naming names, they're giving addresses, and they're offering rewards. And God help any young man with a German-sounding last name. But the reason we had to slip in the story and give you the links to the article is because when Catherine Aiki, our line producer, well, okay, let me have Catherine tell you all about it. Yeah, so every week we go through the bulletin and I go through the New York Times from 1917. And when I was flipping through and I came across this article, I thought it was so weird that they would do this. They would list names and addresses and offer rewards for the men that were slacking. And also I, I lived in New York for 10 years before I moved to DC. So I, I took interest. I started scanning through and it's this amazing cross section of, of New York from a hundred years ago. There's Irish names, Italian names, German names, Japanese names. And, and then I came across a Sam Barry on St. Mark's place. And it is literally the very building where I subletted an apartment for a few months after college. I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was too crazy, um, but there it was. So anyone out there who's spent some significant time in New York, take a look. You may be in the same building as a slacker from 100 years ago. That's a great story. And the very important link to the article is in the podcast notes. October 25th. Episode 43, from Commission News, America's World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., with Edwin Fountain. It may surprise our listeners to learn that in Washington, D.C., there's no national World War I memorial honoring our doughboys, their sacrifice, and their victory in World War I. It's true. There's a memorial for World War II, for Korea, and for Vietnam, but none for World War I. With us today is a man who has passionately been addressing this issue for the better part of a decade, maybe longer. He's also the vice chair of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, Edwin Fountain. Edwin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tayo. Happy to be here. All right, so tell us about America's World War I Memorial in Pershing Park. What's it going to be like? Well, the centerpiece of the memorial is going to be a literally monumental work of bronze bas-relief sculpture. This is an unusual site for a memorial in Washington because we are not working from a, a site that is currently just a blank expanse of grass. We are working within an existing urban park and unlike those other memorials, this, the World War I memorial will have to serve not just as a war memorial but as a war memorial within a living, breathing, well-functioning urban park. And so one of the directions we received from the design approval agencies who we go before was to work within the contours of the existing park. And that park, of course, has the existing memorial to General Pershing in the southeast corner of the site. But the central feature of the existing park is this large basin of pool of water and it's sort of an amphitheater space with terracing leading down to it. And what we are doing is proposing to insert the memorial sculpture 
uh, along one edge of that pool. And then there will be a boardwalk of sorts leading over the pool directly to the memorial so that the viewers can engage very directly and interactively uh, and very personally with the sculpture itself. The figures will be a little bit larger than life, about seven feet high. The viewer will be able to reach out and touch and really relate very personally to the memorial. The sculpture itself is conceived of as a tableau of various scenes uh, involving a recurring soldier, uh, depicting that soldier's individual experience of the war, while at the same time working on a second level representing the American national experience of the war. So we see that soldier in the first scene taking leave from his family, and his young daughter hands him his helmet as he departs home and, and sets out across the ocean with American forces. His wife holds his arm as if to restrain him and hold him back, that gesture reflecting the American debate about whether to enter the war in the first place. But the soldier leaves home, joins the parade to war. He joins the call to arms, much as America answered the call of the international community to engage in this war on, on the side of its allies. And then that parade, which starts out in a very orderly form, starts to break down as the men start to tense and prepare for battle, and then ultimately join the charge into battle. And the central scene of the, the memorial is a, not a literal battle scene, but it is a scene of American soldiers meant to convey the sort of the kinetic turmoil and passion and violence of the battle. And our figure is, a, is, is, is prominent in that scene. And then we pass from that to the aftermath, to a scene of soldiers and nurses showing the physical and psychological cost of the struggle. By having nurses, it gives us the opportunity to, to pick the role of women in the effort. Throughout, we have African-American and, and other figures representing the ethnic diversity of the American Expeditionary Force. And there's a scene that we specifically asked the sculpture to insert where our hero pauses, and whereas the rest of the sculpture reads sort of left to right, there's a scene where the soldier pauses and, and, and stares out directly from the tableau, directly at the viewer inviting the viewer to pause for a moment and reflect on the magnitude, on the, on the solemnitude of, of this great event. And then the soldier rejoins the parade, marching off camera, if you will. One figure looks back, uh, reflecting on American accomplishments of the war, but otherwise the parade is marching off stage into the, into the 20th century, into the American century. And then in the final scene, the, the soldier returns home. And here only his daughter is present. The wife is absent as if she's perhaps died from the influenza. And the soldier hands his helmet back to his daughter. And in that gesture represents the passing of the torch of American leadership from the generation that raised the greatest generation to the greatest generation. And the helmet itself being a portent of the war that would come back to Europe and, and bring American soldiers back to Europe 20 years later. Thank you, Commissioner Edwin Fountain. Thank you, Teo. That was Edwin Fountain, the vice chair of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. November 8, episode 45, from the Great War Project blog. The Eastern Front Collapses with Mike Schuster. Perhaps the biggest and most impactful story a hundred years ago this week is the end of the war on the Eastern Front, as Russia formally drops out of the fight. Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog, is here to tell us about it. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Teo. The headlines 100 years ago, the Bolsheviks seize power in Russia. War on the Eastern Front is over. Lenin and Trotsky announce end to hostilities. 
and this is special to the Great War Project. The Russian provisional government is collapsing, and reports the story in Martin Gilbert, it was too late to restore the disintegrating situation. Nothing could counter the great swell of anti-war opinion. On this day, a century ago, it was learned in Petrograd that Russian troops on the Baltic front had thrown down their arms and begun to fraternize with their German enemy. The provisional government in Petrograd, the Russian capital, orders the 155,000 strong Petrograd garrison to go to the front. Reports Gilbert, they refuse, under pressure from the Bolshevik military committee. The following day, the government of liberal Alexander Kerensky is ordered to enter the city on November 6th, they refuse. At the same time, reports historian Gilbert, the Bolsheviks occupied the principal buildings in the capital, the railway stations, the bridges over the River Neva, which runs through the city, the state bank, and most importantly, the telephone exchange. The second revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, is at hand. On November 7th, a century ago, more than 18,000 Bolsheviks surrounded the provisional government ministers in the Winter Palace, defended by a mere thousand soldiers. More than 9,000 revolutionary sailors entered the city, then 4,000 anti-Kerensky soldiers. More firepower enters Petrograd and takes key strategic positions. Warships also take up key positions and announce their support for the Bolshevik Revolution. The cruiser Aurora, anchored in the city and controlled by the Bolsheviks, announces it will open fire on the Winter Palace. It fires off blank charges, but the city is shaken. The Bolsheviks overrun the palace, reports Gilbert scattering its defenders. Vladimir Lenin is elected chairman, putting him in charge of the Russian capital. Leon Trotsky is named Commissar of Foreign Affairs. It could not possibly last, declares the daughter of the British ambassador and observer of these extraordinary events. It could not possibly last. Petrograd itself might perhaps be forced to submit to such a rule for a short time, but that the whole of Russia be governed by such men, she observes, was not credible. Hardly so, reports historian Gilbert. The six-month-old provisional government had been swept away as assuredly as the Tsar had been swept away before it. In Moscow, Red Guards occupy the Kremlin. The Americans help Kerensky avoid capture. He flees Petrograd in an American embassy car, intending to rally forces loyal to the provisional government. Kerensky sends a message to the American ambassador, beseeching him not to recognize the Bolshevik government. On November 2nd, a century ago, the new government announces a decree of peace. Lenin reads it to a delirious crowd. In the following days, four million copies of the decree are printed and sent to the front, calling for an end to all hostilities. Reports Gilbert, the war-making power of Russia, hitherto the eastern arm of the Allies, was broken. And that's the extraordinary news from a century ago in the Great War Project. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. November 15, episode 46. From 100 years ago this week, the suffragists in World War I. It's a little hard to remember that 100 years ago, during the war that changed the world, a large part of the American citizenry had no democratic sway or say in the governance of the country. For some reason, in a majority of states, it was thought that you needed to be a man to cast a vote. The suffrage movement, the movement for women's right to vote, was in high gear during this time. And in 1916, during his presidential campaign, Woodrow Wilson promises that his Democratic Party will endorse women's suffrage. During that same election, 
the progressive state of Montana, surprise, surprise, elects suffragist Jeanette Rankin to the House of Representatives. And just four days after being sworn in as the first woman to serve in Congress, on April 6, 1917, the House of Representatives is casting its historic vote about declaring war on Germany, which eventually passed 373 to 50. Jeanette Rankin remained silent during the first reading of the roll call. So former Speaker of the House, Joe Cannon of Illinois, seeks her out on the House floor and advises, Little woman, you cannot afford not to vote. You represent the womanhood of the country and in the American Congress. So on the second reading of the roll, violating House rules about commenting on your own vote, Rankin rises from her seat and intones, I want to stand by my country, but I cannot vote for war. While the women of America are fully engaged in the war effort, from sending their sons and husbands and even their daughters into an unknown future, to taking over critical infrastructure jobs and tasks on the home front, and in dozens of other ways. 100 years ago this week, the pages of the New York Times are filled with stories about suffragists, pacifists, and President Wilson's change of position on the women's suffrage movement. <laughs> wow. So let's jump into our Wayback Machine and go back 100 years to see what this fuss is all about. It's the second week of November 1917, and just a week ago, a socio-political tsunami lands when on November 6, 1917, women in New York State win the right to vote. This sends shockwaves through the political arena and emboldens the suffragists to take action in Washington, D.C. In the November 11 Sunday edition of the New York Times, there are three articles about the suffragists in D.C. Dateline, October 11, 1917. A headline in the New York Times reads, Suffragists wary of old party bids. They declare continued nonpartisan fight for federal amendment. Men leaders see danger to their prestige in new political holdings. And the story goes on to read, the suffrage leaders have decided to keep the Woman's Suffrage Party and its organized allies alive and militant as nonpartisan agencies to continue the fight at least until after the Congress shall have adopted and sufficient state legislatures shall have ratified the so-called Susan B. Anthony Amendment to the Federal Constitution. The amendment shall provide for the enfranchisement of women in every nook and corner of the United States. Politicians of the other sex who heard this yesterday realized with a sudden start that man was no longer the only pebble on the political beach. They were not slow to sense the potential behind the plan and marveled that the women's suffrage leaders with a stiff franchise fight on their hands should have found time to think up novel and catchy devices that had never occurred to the men politicians at all. So an overview. The women's suffrage movement wins in New York State. And the suffrage leadership realizes the power of their numbers and decide to hold themselves nonpartisan as a voting bloc until their goals are met. 
all to the odd surprise and shock of the old boys' club, who had not imagined that the ladies would have such strategic pluck. Dateline, October 11, 1917. The headline reads, Arrest of 41 pickets for suffrage at White House. Police unable to induce them to move on, take them off in Black Mariahs. And the story reads, 41 women suffragists from 15 states were arrested this afternoon for picketing outside the White House. A murmur arose as the vanguard of suffragists marched across Pennsylvania Avenue. They carried their usual display banners, one at the head of the line reading, Mr. President, in your message to Congress, urge the amendment of enfranchising women. The police officers quietly informed them that they must move on. They replied that they intended on doing no such thing. The captain gave them a moment to wait, then, motioning to the policeman standing at his elbow, ordered the women to be escorted to the waiting Black Mariahs. They went without protest, filling the wagons. Mrs. Oliver H.P. Belmont, member of the National Executive Committee of the National Women's Party, said, What have we come to in America when splendid women loving liberty are arrested for asking this simple question? Mr. President, in your message to Congress, urge the passage of the federal suffrage amendment enfranchising women. Two days later... Dateline, November 13, 1917. The headline in the New York Times reads, Suffragist pickets get arrested again. 31, including many of the former prisoners taken at the White House again. This explanation was offered by Mrs. Wiley. I want to state we took this action with willingness to sacrifice our personal liberty in order to focus the attention of the nation on the injustice of our disenfranchisement, that we might thereby win political liberty for all the women of the country. She closes with, The Constitution says that Congress shall not in any way abridge the right of citizens peaceably to assemble and petition. This is exactly what we did. We peacefully assembled and then proceeded with our petition to the president for the redress of our grievance of disenfranchisement. The Constitution does not specify the form of petition. Ours was in the form of a banner. To say that we broke traffic regulations when we exercise our constitutional right of petition is therefore itself unconstitutional. So... President Wilson, a previously declared supporter of suffrage, now finds himself in a bind. The suffragists are in large part anti-war, growing in power, declaring themselves apart from established parties and seemingly ever more militant. He comes to see the movement as a threat to the war effort. In the end, a compromise is reached. The suffrage movement declares support for the war, and the Susan B. Anthony Amendment is ratified after being passed by the 36th state, Tennessee, on August 18, 1920. A woman's right to vote becomes the 19th Amendment of the United States Constitution, a movement that had a watershed moment 100 years ago this week in the war that changed the world. December 6. Episode 49, from The Right Blog. A German songwriter soldier found from rediscovering his music. In our Right Blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, 
This week's post reads, Soon, all too soon. When British musicians Patricia Hammond and Matt Redman found and performed German sheet music written by a soldier killed at Verdun, they had no idea that the song, Soon, Too Soon, would lead to the discovery of the composer's body, which had been buried in an unmarked grave in France's Meuse-Argonne region. Read about the captivating hunt for the man behind a melody, and here's a clip from the song performed by Patricia Hammond and Matt Redman. The post, including a video, are at www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for having joined us for part two of our World War I Centennial News favorite segments of 2017. So this is the beginning of a crucial year. As we move from the decision to enter the war and the near-manic ramp-up to do so, to the true sacrifice and loss of our nation's precious sons as we enter the fight, and as that fighting ceases in November. We'll be telling you that story over the coming months. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and our founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Special thanks to the show's line producer, Catherine Akey, researcher Eric Marr, plus the many wonderful guests, contributors, and a rolling team of interns. I'm your host, Teo Mayer. Thank you for listening. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This podcast is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Many thanks to the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. This podcast can be found on our website at www1cc.org cn on iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News, and on Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices, you just say, Alexa, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Bring me a letter from my proud old dad. So long.